Monday night, May 6th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. You're invited to join athletes and celebs at the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame Enshrinement Dinner. Be there to celebrate this year's class featuring Olympic swimmer Jenny Thompson, San Jose Earthquakes legend Chris Wondolowski, Niners Super Bowl hero John Taylor, Sharks icon Patrick Marlowe, and the architect of the Giants dynasty, Brian Sabian. Be a part of this star-studded evening benefiting Special Olympics Northern California. To purchase tickets, visit Bayshoff.org. That's B-A-S-H-O-F.org. On this edition of Where Are They Now? We speak with Dean Evison, who played center for the San Jose Sharks from 1991 to 1993. You may remember just before the Sharks' very first game in Vancouver in October of 91, Evison was acquired from the Hartford Whalers in exchange for defensive prospect Dan Kesmer. He was one of the established NHL players on Coach George Kingston's roster. But for Dean Evison, his hockey life began very shortly after his birth in Flin Flon, Manitoba, in the heart of Canada's Midwest. Well, I actually was born in Flin Flon, and then I moved to a place, it's like five hours north of Flin Flon. It's a place called Thompson, Manitoba, and I lived there until I was 10, um, and then Winnipeg, and then Brandon, but um, they're literally all the same in, in Manitoba. I mean, it's uh, outdoor rinks, um, cold. There's not a lot to do but play hockey, especially as a, as a, a young boy. And, and um, we all had backyard rinks, so we were able to get out. And um, I literally did not play indoor hockey until I was 12 years old. I mean, we played a couple of tournaments here, there in indoor rinks, but, uh, but our seasons were played outside. And um, it was great. Uh, it was super cold, but, uh, but you got used to it, didn't notice it. So... Um, far cry from uh, um, from San Jose, that's for sure. Well, and certainly a far cry from the way the kids are doing it today because there's a lot more indoor hockey. But is that still part of the culture up there, the outdoor stuff? It, yeah, it is. There's, uh, it's not as much uh, league-wise that are played because there's so many rinks now, but um, it's definitely um, a tradition up there that uh, families and or kids uh, are able to go to outdoor rinks on evenings and weekends and um, when you get there there's just a whole bunch of people there's usually one rink that's for just skating figure skating what have you and then there's the the actual rink where um, it's like every half hour or so when new people show up um, they stop the game and you throw your sticks in the middle of the ice and somebody uh, usually the, you know, an older guy, a, a dad will go and he'll grab sticks and throw them one to one side, one to the other. And you, you make up teams and you play and, uh, it's, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. Don't you think that you developed a sense of self-reliance about solving your own problems and, and kind of having a frontier attitude by just by the way you grew up and how that helped you in hockey? I, I, I think so. Um, and I think coming from, you know, small town uh, Manitoba, you, um, you, you definitely feel that you've got to uh, work a little bit harder um, than the next, uh, the next person to, uh, to actually have an opportunity to make it. Clearly, I was very fortunate to have um, made it and played, it, played in the NHL. But, uh, but yeah, I think you, you definitely have that sense of, uh, you know, um, an underdog and uh, you, you compete and you battle scratch and claw to, to try to get where you want to get. And uh, like I said, I was very fortunate enough to have, uh, to have made it. When you were growing up, the NHL didn't have 31 teams, certainly not, thir- not to even 22 teams when the Sharks came in. 
the WHA was coming around right about the time that you were get, getting to realize what pro hockey was all about. But uh, when you live in Brandon, Manitoba, who are your favorite teams growing up and who are your hockey idols? Hmm. Um, the Philadelphia Flyers were my, uh, my team. And because Bobby Clark uh, played uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers, a uh, great leader, um, great hockey player, was a center iceman. Um, which I was, uh, but was born in Flintflon, Manitoba. And I always joke that, uh, you know, him and I were born in the same hospital. I know that for a fact. And people are like, well, how, how do you know that? I said, well, there's only one hospital. So I knew for a fact that I play, I, I was born in the same one. But yeah, I, uh, I idolized Bobby Clark because of that. And then to watch him throughout his career, how he played, how he competed, watched him in the 72 series, uh, the famous slash that he has. But uh but he just battled, was a great leader um, and, uh, you know, somebody that I looked up to. Maybe you can give us an idea about that 72 series. Again, it's so long ago for so many people, but what it really meant to the country, to Canada, to see uh, Canada play the Russians at that time and, and have all of that drama surrounding it in the international incidents that we had at those days. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, I was uh, uh, young uh, at the time, and I, I remember them wheeling in a, a TV on a steel gurney, whatever it is, uh, and, and stopped school for all of us to, to watch the game. I think it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've actually got a video, um, a CD collection of every game of that series. And then there's one that has like the highlight uh, and, and interviews and what have you. So um, very exciting. But yeah, it, you know, I think at that time, everybody thought, you know, Canada was just going to roll over Russia. And we found out how great those teams were and how great those players were. And clearly um, there's so many great ones that have come through the NHL now, but, uh, but it was a, it was a battle. And I think it really, um, you know, brought the country of Canada together. And I think in the long run, I think it was really great for hockey um, on a whole. How old were you when you started playing? Um, well, my mom says that it was like five, five, five years old, five and a bit um, when you first started, uh, you know, organized. But um, I think I was on skates probably three, three, four, um, just, you know, in the backyard and and doing your thing, but uh, I don't think that's abnormal for uh, back in the day. No, not not at all, and certainly not for anybody that played in the NHL, and maybe you can address that, the idea of, of how much of a family commitment is really needed to get a young man to get to the NHL. It, it's an incredible, uh, and you see people that win these big awards and or awards period and, and Stanley Cups, and they, they always remember back to their – uh, what their families have sacrificed, what their moms and dads and and uh, brothers and sisters and and as far as getting up in the morning, those early morning practices, financially sacrificing to um, suit kids up. Uh, there's you know it's expensive to play the game um, with all the equipment and what have you. And um, there's a lot of people that have to sacrifice a lot of their own um, you know pleasures uh, you know to to provide for. Uh, a lot of us that uh, that have gone on to make it. When did hockey become more serious in your mind? The idea that you were going to pursue it a little bit more seriously than just a, a game out on the pond? Probably when I was 14, I guess. I was playing midget hockey in Brandon, Manitoba, 14, 15, and uh, realized that, um, you know, that, that, that certainly I'd, I'd want to, 
try to pursue playing junior hockey um, and, and then see what happens from there. Uh, but th that was probably, and then when I got into junior, I, uh, I was able to have some, some wonderful coaches uh, and, and teammates and I was able to get the, the Kamloops franchise. It's a famous count, uh, franchise in Western Hockey League um, play uh, for them and played for a coach named Bill LaForge who really pushed us really hard, uh, you know, to, to not only, you know, be good hockey players, but good people and good teammates and, and, and work, uh, work to get to where we wanted to be. So um, there's a lot of people that I, I credit to, you know, helping along the way, but, uh, but probably uh, that was the first time that I thought maybe I had an opportunity to play. And you never think that you have an opportunity to play, uh, you know, that you're going to make a, a career of it or a, or a life out of it. But literally I, I haven't had a real job, um, you know, for, for my entire life because this game has been so good for me and to me. You know, you mentioned Bill LaForge. He's kind of a legendary figure in the history of the Western Hockey League. I remember when he briefly coached the Vancouver Canucks, but obviously he was a big influence on your career. But tell us what he was all about, because he had a unique style of coaching. Yeah, very hard nose. And back in those days, it was, uh, you know, I think you could do that a little bit more. You could challenge um, people a little bit harder than than can be challenged today. And there's some things that um, that, you know, weren't positive, but um, for myself personally, just pushing me to battle and compete um, every night as a smaller player, um, I think gave me, you know, the ability to um, battle to, to, to get to the highest level. But there's a lot of different coaches, um, you know, along the way that, that you uh, take different things from, you know, as far as, you know, him. And then there's other coaches that teach you more tactical stuff, skill stuff. Um, and what have you, but uh, but he he certainly instilled a work ethic in not only myself but uh, but everybody that went through there. You know, we're talking about the Western Hockey League, and you're so intimately involved with that league as a player, and then later as a coach and and developing. Uh, did you ever think that you would have any different choices? A lot of kids today, you know, you say you play in the BC Junior League as you did. Uh, maybe you stay in that league a little longer and you go to the U.S. and play uh, in an NCAA scholarship. But did, was it always very WHL focused for you? Yeah, pretty much. <clears throat> I went uh, I went toured UND um, in uh, Grand Forks, which is close to Brandon, Manitoba. I toured there um, and it was just uh, uh, probably more than anything is that I, I really didn't uh, like school a whole lot. And there wasn't the um, the scholarships, uh, that there are today, um, that are given out. It was a little, a little tougher path, um, I think than going to play junior hockey, um, and, and try to work your way up that way. So, um, it just seemed a, uh, not a clear path because you don't have a clue at that point, uh, you know, what your path is going to be, but the opportunity arose to play junior hockey. And I certainly jumped at it. I take it that uh, when you were drafted by the Washington Capitals, you didn't have the scene that they have today where you're actually in the building and where you kiss your mom and it's on national television. It was a little bit different back then, but maybe you can give us the story about how you found out you got drafted. Well, I, I mentioned that I didn't have a real job, but I had a couple of summer jobs um, and I was working at a, a, a dealership and I was the, um, uh, the grease grease monkey or I can't remember exactly what they called it, but changing oil, um, washing cars, taking the garbage to the dump. And uh, I was 
um, doing that in the summer and, and, uh, my brother, the, of course, there's no cell phones in that those days. And my brother called the dealership and the guy came over and said, your brother's on the call and they're on the phone. And he said, uh, you're going to see the president. And I literally said to him, you know, what are you talking about? Like no idea what he's talking about. And he said, you just got drafted to the Washington capitals. And, uh, then just started the process, obviously, uh, you know, People were calling the house and uh, David Poyle, uh, um, who I've circled back uh, many years later and worked for um, with the Nashville organization uh, in Washington, but uh, um, called and said that they had drafted me. And it was obviously a very exciting uh, point in my uh, my life. Isn't it funny how, how hockey is such a small world? I mean, you played for Brian Murray, right? Yes. Uh, and Terry, actually, I think might have been there at the same yep. time you were there. You had David Poyle as a GM. And all yeah. these people just keep circling back and cycling back. You know, it's a, it's, it's a great game in that way. It's, it's a very loyal game, the game of hockey, really good people. Um, and I think if you treat people the right way and you conduct yourself the right way, um, there's going to be opportunities in, in some, some way. I think, uh, um, you know, if you, you have the love of the game, there's a lot of different positions, uh, you know, and clearly, I was fortunate enough to play and then uh, literally get right into coaching after. So you come to San Jose, you get George Kingston, you, you have a, you have the cow palace. What were you thinking when you said you found out you got traded to San Jose and what did you expect? Well, the first, uh, you know, is obviously a shock, uh, you know, a surprise, but, uh, but getting there, I mean, we were very excited, obviously to get to California and, yeah, just coming to San Jose, I mean, obviously it was exciting. Um, you know, when I started in the league, there was only one team in the South, and that was uh, the Los Angeles Kings. And, uh, um, you know, so we didn't know what to expect, obviously, uh, getting to California. But one of the things that I really remember is the people, um, you know, the expansion team that we were all, you know, kind of kind of misfits put together um, and how we had to stick together. And clearly we didn't win as many hockey games as, uh, as we would have liked to, but, uh, but we sure had a, a close knit group. And I think, you know, the, the cow palace was exciting. I think the people really bought into uh, the excitement of, of having the sharks there. So I think those are kind of the, the fondest memory, the, the, the fans, and, and then obviously the, the closeness of the teams that we had there for the two years that I was, I was a shark. I always remember a couple of things about that time. Uh, number one, after games, the way that the uh, the setup was near the locker rooms. First of all, you had to go upstairs to the upstairs. locker that, yep. rooms. That's, that's something everybody forgets. Uh, everybody remembers going downstairs to Chicago Stadium, but this was upstairs to get to the, to the locker room. And after games, where the TV trucks were there, uh, the buses were all there, and there was this little space between the two locker rooms. And everybody on both teams used to just sort of gather and talk. And that was some, that's something you never see today because everything is so separated. Well, certainly with COVID, but, but even under normal circumstances, um, wasn't it, wasn't that kind of an interesting part of it that everybody just kind of wanted to find out what it was like playing for the new team and what it was all about. It was, it was very unique. Um, I think the stairs were um, one of the factors that really played into it, but we had so many new things um, arise there and, uh, um, as you know, the Cow Palace having such a great history and a unique building was, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, definitely a fun place to play. And again, the biggest thing 
was the atmosphere that the fans created and the excitement level with uh, you know the power play and and the the the, the shark that was created at that time and um, you know it was just it was just a fun fun group and uh, you know I uh, you know you I don't stay in contact with a lot of people but when you um, you know cross paths with somebody you know the Perry Berzins or or Kelly Kissios of the world and Doug Wilson the other night uh, him and I just chatting about you know, the old days and, and the, the fun that we had, uh, you know, was a, a very unique uh, experience and one that uh, obviously I'll remember for the rest of my life. Well, one thing that I'll remember is your first trip back to Hartford because um, it was a cross-country flight. <clears throat> yeah. The plane was delayed yeah. and the bus didn't show up. And I remember pulling into the, to the hotel right next door to the Hartford Civic Center at about 6.30 in the morning the day of the game. You remember that, that whole scenario? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause my, my wife and uh, um, my first child were, were still in Hartford and I was supposed to go home. And I think I ended up just staying right at the hotel and, and sleeping because of the, 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 the getting in so late and, and the game obviously. But um, I do remember the plane. And I do remember sitting on uh, or in that little room there. So many different things and so many interesting players. Um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about Doug Wilson, and of course, he's now the Sharks general manager, but he brought instant credibility to the franchise when he was traded to the team because of his distinguished career and kind of rallied everybody in those those early days. So what do you remember about him as a captain and 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 how things have developed? Well, just just how classy he was. Um, you know, he had the uh, the no helmet look, so he was very, very recognizable by uh, by everybody. But um, just what a, a class act he was, and how um, you know we mentioned, or I mentioned before, how we didn't win a lot of hockey games, but uh, but we conducted ourselves with uh, with class, and I think in, in large part because of him um, is how we we handled ourselves. Uh, you know, after those losses, how we handled ourselves. Uh, in the city, how we handle ourselves around the league um, was was really led by uh, by him um, and and how he conducted himself. I think we all we all watched that and uh, and were able to uh, you know hopefully pre- present ourselves uh, in the city of of San Jose well, even though we weren't winning a lot of hockey games. I'm pretty sure you probably had some connection with George Kingston before coming to the Sharks through the national team and anything you might have done, maybe not. But uh, wouldn't you say that uh, everything that we've been describing about the way coaches were back then, uh, he was sort of the polar opposite of that? Yeah, he was He was unique. Um, definitely unique uh, with his coaching style. Um, George was a very technical coach. Um, very um, tried to, you know, psychologically tried to get you in a frame of mind to play the game. And uh, so very, very unique. And as a coach now, you know, you, you, you think back and you take little pieces of, of every coach kind of that you've had um, throughout your career. And one of them was George and how he handled us, um, how he brought us together as a team. We had a lot of team events, a lot of team bonding events. And, uh, you know, still uh, George was involved in the Coaches Association, so Coaches Association when it first started up. And so I've crossed paths with him a lot. And we've talked a lot about our days uh, with the San Jose Sharks. You know, you mentioned that the team bonding stuff. I remember another thing. I wasn't at this, but a trip to Sun Valley. George Gunn had all you guys up there. Uh, yeah. What are your memories of George Gunn and, and the way he interacted with the team? 
Yeah, well, I think that was unique uh, back in the day. Like we didn't do a lot of that uh, as a team. Um, you know, certainly when I was with the Hartford Whalers, like we were, we do it with as the guys, but we wouldn't do it as the families. And I think that's what Mr. Gund and uh, um, George Kingston uh, really um, instilled in us that it was a family um, that they were involved because uh, the sacrifices that they made and. And he made it uh, a nice and comfortable situation for, for everybody. And, and those trips really uh, were appreciated by not only us, but our, our wives and children as well. Out of all the guys on that uh, Cow Palace era of the Sharks, there's one player that everybody continually, continually asks me about, and that's Link Gates. What, what are your thoughts? What are your memories of, of, some, of the, the, some of the wild moments he had <laughs> during the course of the two years, the one year really he played there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, big, strong, skilled, uh, physical player had all the tools. Um, clearly he, he had some, some demons in him um, that he had to work through. Um, but as far as a teammate, he would do anything that he had to do. And if that meant, you know, fighting, sticking up for a teammate, um, he would do it. I remember him playing defense. I remember playing forward. Um, but, you know, he had some challenges and he had some challenges in San Jose that, uh, that he had to work through. And, um, but, uh, but certainly um, we had a lot of unique characters on, uh, on those, the, that team and, and certainly the two years that I was there. Um, but I have nothing Nothing but um, good things to say about uh, about Link, uh, you know, as a person, and that had to work through a lot of a lot of uh, personal situations. That the fight with Bob Probert is the one that people still remember as one of the great fights in history of the NHL. And I remember the goalie scored against the Montreal Canadiens the night that, that that we had a we had a wedding on the ice. Then we had a fifty five minute <laughs> delay because of. Uh, the way that the Zamboni driver used to leave the marsh pegs in and ripped up the ice surface. That fight in particular, um, obviously has been shown on YouTube and in different media outlets over the years. And, and you can see we're on the bench, I'm on the bench and you're just, you know, we're all wide eyed watching it. And it was, you know, an amazing fight and both of them got up and, and uh, there were red marks, but there was no blood. And, uh, you know, just the, you know, the respect that two of them had, um, you know, the, you know, fighting in, in those days was, uh, you know, a lot more than obviously it is today and right or wrong. It, uh, it was part of the game. Um, but, uh, but Link uh, not only had, you know, skill on the ice as far as passing and, and scoring, but he definitely had skill fighting as well. One thing that happened in the second year, which was really a tough year, uh, for the expansion team was uh, was a the longest losing streak tied for in, in the history of the NHL. I remember calling the game in Winnipeg on Valentine's Day '93 when 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 that uh, streak came to an end. But it felt like you guys won the Stanley Cup by just ending ending the darn game. What was it? Uh, what was it like ending the streak? And uh, is there any truth to the rumor that uh, that you had a special celebration inside the locker room when it finally ended? <laughs> Well, I can't remember the celebration, but I definitely remember, uh, um, you know, how, how elated we were and how excited we were, obviously, to, uh, you know, to win a game. Like I said, there wasn't a lot of 
a lot of wins. So there was a lot of frustrating nights, a lot of nights that, uh, you know, had negative stuff involved in it. But um, again, what, what I truly remember is how we stuck together as a group and uh, bonded together and uh, rallied around, uh, you know, trying to battle to, uh, to win hockey games. We knew that we weren't, you know, just, you know, the, the most talented group, but, uh, but I think if you ask uh, any teams that, uh, that played against us, they knew that they, they had played against a team that was willing um, to win, maybe not the, the most talent, but, uh, but we definitely had work ethic. That's for sure. You know, isn't it amazing to compare the way that the, the NHL dealt with expansion teams then and the way they do now with, uh, with the Seattle now coming in after what happened in Vegas? Yeah, we, we certainly didn't have uh, the same type of, uh, of uh, roster as, uh, as Vegas does. But, you know, we, and I've talked to a few guys uh, about that. But if, if we did, we probably wouldn't have been on the team. So, um, <clears throat> but, uh, but no, it was an uh, exciting time for us. And um, like I said, we competed our butts off. And, um, you know, the franchise got started. And, you know, to see it where it is today, um, as, as, uh, you are a testament to that, it's, um, it's, it's come a long way and it's, uh, you know, one of the, one of the best franchises now in the national hockey league. So how did you decide to get into coaching? You were playing in Europe after, after you left the NHL, you went to Dallas, went to Calgary and played a little bit for the national team. But, uh, I, I remember you played in Switzerland for, for at least a year and maybe yep. a little bit in Germany, but uh, where did the idea of becoming a coach start? And when did you start thinking about it? Well, it's a, that's a sharp connection as well. Um, Kelly Kissier was the, the general manager for the Calgary Hitmen in the Western Hockey League. And him and I had stayed in close contact. We actually roomed together when we were in, uh, in San Jose. And I finished, uh, finished up playing in Germany, a place called Landshut. And I had been in contact with Kelly and said that I'd like to get into coaching at some point. I was a player assistant coach with Team Canada. And through that year, the, the European leagues end in, I think it's February, March, uh, something like that. And he said, would you be interested in coming back and helping us out? Uh, Dean Clark uh, was the head coach. And uh, he said, as, a, as an assistant coach, an eye in the sky type of thing. And I said, absolutely. And we ended up winning the Western Hockey, going to the Memorial Cup in Ottawa. and. Uh, you know, it did. That literally started my my coaching career. I got the job uh, with the Canloops uh, Blazers the the following season after uh, um, a connection with uh, the general manager there um, with the Calgary Hitmen. And Kelly Kissio had a big part in uh, getting my coaching career started. How have kids, since you're working with 16 to 20 year old kids in junior hockey and a lot of very young players now in the NHL, how have hockey players changed from the time that you were playing what's the character and the makeup of the kids today and how how are they different yeah I, I think we touched on uh how you how you can uh um coach kids uh, as far as um you know how far you can go um you know uh, pushing them um physically back in the day you could really push hard you know, uh, with uh, physical intensity as far as practice and workouts and what have you. But I don't think uh, players are much different. Um, you know, the, the, the guys that make it are the ones that have really strong will, really strong desire, um, you know, to, uh, 
to get there. And I think the talent level, there's a lot of talk of, you know, that the, the players are, are more skilled now than they were before. And I, I, I struggle with that a little bit because playing against a guy like Wayne Gretzky back in the day um, had more skill than I think, uh, you know, every player uh, that you see today he might not have been as fast and, uh, but you do have those those quicker players as well. So, um, but the you know, coaching kids, uh, you know, I think end of the day, uh, hockey players want to be hockey players, and um, I think if they have that desire, uh, you know, you can push them, you know, in different directions to uh, to get where they want to go. So now you're the head coach of the Minnesota Wild. You came in as an interim last year after a couple years as as an assistant. Just give us an idea of what your philosophy is and, and what you're trying to build in Minnesota. Um, <clears throat> really trying to build um, a, a team. I think a lot of coaches are, are in the same kind of boat is that the game is so fast today that you want your team not only to be fast, but you want your, your team to play with pace. Um, you want it to get up the ice. Um, uh, one of the biggest focuses uh, for me as a head coach is to really bring the group together. Um, I think I've, I've just, uh, through my experiences in the game as a player and a coach, I think the tighter knit your group is, um, the better off you're going to be, the better chance you're going to have to have success. And I, it's difficult in this era, certainly the COVID era, to do team building stuff and what have you. But I think if you can establish um, that everyone is important on your team, regardless of you know, if they're on the so-called fourth line or the first line or the sixth defenseman, the number one defenseman, number one goalie, I think if you can um, instill in your group that everybody has a role and everybody's as important as anybody, um, I think you're going to give your, your your team an opportunity to have success. Well, Dean, this has been a great conversation. I know Sharks fans that remember you as a player remember that you were exactly that type, the type that brought people together and worked hard. And I know that you're going to be a big success with the Wild and the uh, we just look forward to some great confrontations in the near future. And uh, it's just great to spend time with you. Well, thank you, Dan. And I uh, appreciate it. And uh, the work that you've done over the years is amazing and, uh, and still going. It's uh, you're, you're so well-respected within the game as well. And um, I know I really enjoyed my time uh, spending with you uh, when we were with the Sharks. Our thanks to Sharks alumnus Dean Evison for joining us today. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Tune in next time for another episode of Where Are They Now?